Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, here we are again for the Beeson Podcast. Today, I have the privilege of having a conversation with one of my dearest friends, my colleague, Dr. Charles T. Carter. We're in a series this um, this year really thinking about the theme of racial reconciliation because this is the 50th anniversary of the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in 1963. Our school has, Beeson Divinity School, has designated racial reconciliation as one of our strategic initiatives. And I especially wanted to have this conversation with Dr. Carter because he has lived through so much of this history and has had such a catalytic role in bringing a redeeming word of Christian grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to this question. So, Dr. Carter, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. George. I'm honored to be here. Now, I doubt very seriously if there are many or any listeners who do not know Charles T. Carter. But just in case somebody is driving down the road or listening on the Internet, let me give a brief introduction. And then I want you to talk about what it was like growing up in the South in the era uh, prior to 1963. And you were a pastor, a young pastor, and some of the experiences you had. Dr. Carter's a native of Birmingham. He attended Samford University the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, became a pastor in Alabama in several churches, including the great Whitesburg Baptist Church in Huntsville, and then for 26 years, the pastor of Shades Mountain Baptist Church in Birmingham. He was my pastor, my family's pastor, and we love him dearly for that. Beyond the local church, he's had a ministry uh, throughout the denomination. He's been the president of the Alabama Baptist State Convention, serving on numerous boards and agencies, active in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention, and even much more broadly in the whole body of Christ. So, Charles, you're a person that brings a lot of life experience and great Christian commitment to this issue. So tell us a little bit about your own background growing up in Alabama in the 50s and into the 60s. Well, I guess if being old and being around a long time and being in Alabama a long time qualifies me, I'm qualified. But I am a product of the very area you're describing. I was born here in Birmingham uh, many years ago. I grew up here most of all of my life, and uh, except for the few years I was away in graduate school, I uh, have been here in the Bible Belt of the South in Alabama. So I grew up in a church that was all white. Uh, race was not an issue when I was a young boy. I was saved as a young uh, fellow and. Uh, 1943 at the Calvary Baptist Church here in Birmingham. And uh, we had no black children in the schools where I went, and I don't recall it ever being an issue in the 1940s. In the 50s, it increasingly became an issue, and I can remember very clearly as a young— I was called to preach when I was only 12 years old and preached my first sermon when I was only 14, and I can remember as a young preacher— a young teenager, uh, getting into the Bible to see what does the Bible say about race. And as far as I could determine then and now, 
The word race is not found anywhere in the Bible. Racism is not found there. But what I did find was multiple biblical principles that we can talk about later. But I was <clears throat> specifically, uh, I was here in Birmingham the very time the 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed in September of 1963. I can remember very well the racial tension that was building up here in the city, so much so that on Easter Sunday of 1963, Dr. Billy Graham agreed to come to Legion Field, a large arena here in our city, with seated 60,000 people. And the t- I was there at that very session. It was so much tension, I did not even feel comfortable taking my wife or my children. But I went there, and uh, in typical Graham fashion, uh, he preached the gospel, but he insisted that it be an integrated audience, and it was. It was a wonderful worshiping time, and uh, he preached as only he could do in a setting like that, and it was a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. However, as history now records, five months later, the bombing took place uh, at that uh, church, and uh, I had passed that church many, many times. My own father worked just a few blocks from there, and uh, so I went back and forth, going back and forth, and I remember how shocked I was that anyone anywhere could bomb any building, much less a church, and on Sunday, much less resulting in the death of those four precious girls. And as you know, one of our own graduates here was right next to them and uh, escaped death and has lived to testify to the sovereignty and the grace of God. That's but, Carolyn McKinstry you're talking about. Yes. She has written a book, While the World Watched, uh, which I would recommend to our listeners because it tells her own story and then the reaction her life was so decisively shaped by that event. Right. You remember once we had our faculty retreat there in that church, and Carolyn, you invited to be our guest, and she did a marvelous job of filling in some of the blanks. First hand is someone who is right there when the blast went off. And the aftermath of that put an awful image of Birmingham in the minds of many people, and, and much of it was justified. The hoses were used. The dogs were called out. The commissioner then, uh, who was Eugene Connor, better known as Bull Connor, uh, said some awful things, did some awful things, and by and large, the church was silent. I heard very f- infrequently uh, proclamations from the pulpit, and yet... It couldn't be decided just by pulpit proclamation. If we're going to have racial reconciliation, it's got to start in the heart of the individual person and then the local church and then to the denomination and finally spill out into the society in which we live. But after that tragic day in 1963, um, I believe it was the very next year that the Civil Rights Act was passed. Yeah, 64, and uh, And the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Right. And then Mm -hmm. it increasingly became more and more tense in the areas. And at that time, though, in the sovereignty of God, I moved from Birmingham to Huntsville, which was an altogether different arena. Huntsville is kind of a cosmopolitan area in Alabama. People, Very few people were natives of Huntsville. Most of them came in elsewhere. They were highly educated people. Ninety percent of the male members of our church were college graduates or above. So the race issue was not a major issue in Huntsville, but it still was in many places uh, in Alabama. 
I want to, I want to come back because you had a continuing role in this issue well past the era of the 60s. I want to talk about that. But I want to go back into your early life as a minister. Even before 1963, you mentioned you were called to preach quite young and began to preach and actually was a pastor very young. And uh, several years ago, we did a series of sermons. You preached a sermon at Beeson Divinity School that was later incorporated into a book my colleague, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., and I edited called A Mighty Long Journey, in which you related a story uh, that you experienced as a young pastor in the Clanton area of Alabama. Would you tell us that story? It's a vivid memory in my mind, Dr. George, and uh, it happened the night of November the 26th, 1955, a Saturday night. A friend of mine and I had begun a countywide Baptist Youth Rally for the kids all over the county. In that day and time, there wasn't much else for them to do. And we traveled across the county, wherever churches would open up their doors, every other Saturday night. It happened that two weeks before this, uh, a young black minister in the county had heard what we were doing, and he called me, and I don't even remember his name, and said, uh, we would like to begin a ministry like this for the black young people of, Ch- of Chilton County near Clannan. And uh, But I don't know what to do. Would you mind if I came and just observed? I said, sure, we'd be delighted to have you. And so two weeks immediately prior to that night of uh, November the 26th, so I guess it was November the 12th, we met at the Liberty Hill Baptist Church outside of Clannon. Maybe 300 young people and their parents and adults were there. And this young man came. I met him. He sat on the second row. At the end of the service, I introduced him and called on him to lead in the closing prayer, told why he was there and asked them to pray for him as he tried to uh, implement this kind of outreach ministry to the black kids of that county. Uh, That's the last time I saw him. I don't know his name. Don't know where he is today. But two weeks later, when they came to the little church that I was pastor of then, Providence Baptist, outside of Jemison, Alabama, maybe a dozen miles north of Clannan, while we were in the midst of the worship service that night, a friend of mine and I were leading the service. A layman came to the side door and motioned with his hand. And uh, uh, so my friend James Jones uh, went out, and he was gone and gone and gone. I was leading the singing. We kept singing hymns, waiting for him to come back. And finally, when he came back in, he said, uh, I need to say something. And he got up, and I will never forget what he said. He said, we have some guests who wish to come in tonight. And with that word, in the back door of that little clapboard frame country church walked ten hooded Kukux Klansmen, interrupting a Christian worship service, came down the aisle, lined up across the front. The leader of the group dropped $10 in the offering plate, got out on his knees and prayed what I would call a white supremacist prayer. And they marched out. That's all that was ever said. That very night, uh, Harper Shannon happened to have been the guest preacher. I will never forget what he said when he stood up. He said, if I've ever been tempted to change the topic of my sermon, it would be tonight. But I will not yield to the impulse of the moment. And he proceeded on to preach a wonderful message on the genuine gospel from Galatians 1. However, back to the situation This young man, James Jones, and I had a radio program that was there in the local county, 
every Sunday morning from 9 to 9.30. And we alternated preaching, and the next morning was my time to preach. And I remember staying up. I still have most of the sermon that I wrote out that night. I was very, very angry. And I did speak the truth, but I didn't speak it in love. Mm -hmm. I was angry at what they had done, their attitude, their spirit, everything about it. And so in the midst of my anger, I must say, I preached a sermon on James 2 and Acts 10, God is no respecter of persons. And in plain language, I blistered their hide. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was not kind. And as I think back on it, in my youth, I was 19 years old. Uh, I didn't do it very tactfully. I spoke the truth. Well, that word went out all over that county. We got threats and all kind of uh, criticism for what we had done. If I had it to do over again, I'd do the same thing, but I would do it in a different spirit. I'd try to be more Christ-like. But the pro end result of that was that people in that county, for the first time, I think, good people, saw how deep-seated the racial hostility and prejudice was. And this was in 1955, eight years before the bombing of the church at uh, 16th Street. Mm -hmm. Now, to jump forward, Dr. George, in March of 1998, right after I retired at Chase Mountain, I preached a revival back in the county seat town of that county, Chilton County, at First Baptist Church. And that very week, that very week, that church received their first black member. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking the pastor if I could tell what happened and to say to them, folks, this is progress, but it is too slow Progress. That was 43 years 43 after years that event. 43 years after yeah. the tragedy, and it took that long for the first black member to be received into that church. And yet, at least some degree of progress is being made. So there's still a long way to go. As you say in your book, it is a mighty long journey. a mighty journey. long journey. That's from a, a, a Negro spiritual, an African-American song from the time of slavery. It's a mighty long journey, but we're on the way. We're on the way. So there's hope, and yet we have to be realistic. And right. also there's a place for repentance as well as forgiveness and grace Amen. in all of this. Now, uh, let me take you uh, still in the 90s. You mentioned that uh, event and uh, your preaching back in your uh, area of Clanton, uh, also in the 90s, I think it was 1995, uh, this became an issue for the entire Southern Baptist Convention. That's right. And in God's providence, you were chosen, uh, I don't think for this reason, you were just because of your stature in the denomination and your beloved and much respected, you were chosen to be uh, the chairman of the Resolutions Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention when this became an issue for us as a denomination to deal with. Would you say a little bit about that process, the Resolutions Committee, and particularly the Resolution on Racial Reconciliation on the 150th anniversary of the Southern Baptist Convention that you chaired in 1995? The embryonic idea for that racial reconciliation, uh, racial reconciliation resolution actually was in the heart of Dr. Jim Henry, who at that time was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orlando, but was president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, one day Jim called and asked me, would I be chairman of this committee? Uh, before he told me that, he said, I would like for us to deal uh, have a resolution on racial reconciliation among the others. 
and uh, uh, he did not know about the racial thing at uh, the Ku Klux Klan in 1955. Later, I told him about it. But anyway, the committee met, and we hammered out what is now in print, that resolution. And it passed almost unanimously. There were a few dissenting votes, but nebulous. I would say it was 99%. I wish it could have been 100%. The good news was that, to my knowledge, it's the first time a resolution by Southern Baptists ever made the the headlines of the Wall Street Journal (laughs) and the New York Times. Both of those papers publicized it the next day. And it was a tragedy, though, that we had to wait that long to say something positive. But I said to myself as I was coming home, the easier thing is to pass a resolution. The more difficult thing is to implement it in the local church and in our own practical daily living. And so I made up my mind coming back from Atlanta to where we were meeting to Birmingham that as soon as I could, I was going to establish some meaningful personal relationships with African-American Christians here in the city. And I did. Uh, and uh, one of those had begun a church down in downtown Birmingham, and I took him to lunch, and what I had in my mind was the idea of uh, getting together from him a group of black pastors and us dialoguing, and I never will forget what he said. He said, well, uh, Dr. Carter, I've, I've about met Nat all I want to. I'm ready to do something, and I said, well, all right. The long shot of that meeting was we developed a partnership with that church in downtown Birmingham, an African-American church, not completely, it was really a biracial church that had been begun by him and was reaching out to the inner city. He actually started a ministry there in the lowest income per capita zip code in the whole United States, Mm -hmm. right here in Birmingham. He ministered to the people there. His church had a desire. Their theme was to go from dependency to self-sufficiency, taking them off welfare and getting, teaching them, training them on how to work. But beyond that, we developed a relationship with them as a church. And I preached in their church. They came to our church. And I learned from that, oftentimes, much of our prejudice of our white people is couched in ignorance. They really don't know that they're wonderful, good, God-fearing, Bible-believing, Christ-loving black Christians all over. We just know them. We just don't know them. I remember so well the night they first came to our church, a wonderful oncologist in their church, African-American, sat with one of the doctors in our church, and they became dear friends as a result of getting to know one another. That would never have happened had we not done this. And their choir has sung for us. We have preached for them. They preach for us. So that was a step, at least a baby step, to be sure, in trying to initiate reconciliation. I want to go back to this resolution. You were the chairman of this committee in 1995. It's too long to read the entire thing, but I want to read several of the resolves uh, that the resolution comes to because I think they do have not only historic significance but contemporary significance for us today. Be it resolved that we lament and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery, from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. And we recognize that the racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. 
I think that's a really important statement because none of us are born uh, just de novo. We come from a culture. We come from a society. We bring a heritage with us. There are good things about that, and there are detrimental things about that. And I think it took some courage to put it just exactly that way in 1995. And you go on to say that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime, and we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. We ask forgiveness from our African American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. So it's a mutuality. It's not, you know, here, there, you, me. Uh, we're in this together, and we need to seek together the wisdom of God, the forgiveness of God, and the reconciliation that ultimately can come only from God Amen. in a matter like this. So uh, there, as you say, there was there some controversy in 1995, and I want to speed forward now to the present moment in the Southern Baptist Convention. We know this is not just a Baptist or Southern Baptist problem. Uh, it's a problem that uh, really is, is uh, all-encompassing in the whole world. But today in the Southern Baptist Convention, we have for the first time since 1845 when the convention was established in Augusta, Georgia, an African-American president Amen. elected unanimously. I was there and voted for him. I'm glad to say that. <laughs> Dr. Fred Luter. Yes. Now, you know him. And talk a little bit about this present moment, the opportunity that we have as a people of God to be faithful in this regard. Well, I couldn't be more happy that Fred Luter was elected our president. I know him. We preached together on conferences. And it was, I think it's a commentary, Dr. George, on the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> In all of our blemishes and defects, uh, God has raised up leaders across the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, in African-American churches. And we happened to be meeting in New Orleans where after Katrina went through and completely devastated his church and they were scattered all over. Fred, for many months, preached three different sermons in, I think, in Houston, Texas, Decatur, Georgia, and then there in New Orleans until the congregation finally got back together. I think a commentary upon the reconciliation currently that's, that it is taking place, and not many people know this, but... After that tragedy of Katrina, uh, what, 2005 or six, they had no place to meet. Their church, uh, the Franklin Avenue Baptist Church, was completely devastated. The First Baptist Church of New Orleans on uh, St. Charles Avenue, I believe, opened the doors of their church every Sunday afternoon for an extended period, I believe two years. And the church came and used their, had access to all their facilities. And there was a wonderful relationship built there. Now, at the last Sunday that Franklin Avenue Church, an African-American church predominantly, was meeting in First Baptist Church, New Orleans, Fred Luter, who later became, as you said, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, asked the pastor of that church at First Baptist, New Orleans, to be present. And at the close of that worship service, he presented to him a check for $100,000 as a gesture to say thank you for what you've done for our church. 
And that money came from people who had mediocre incomes, and yet generously they gave because the church had been so kind to them. And there's a bond between those two churches that I hope would be a prototype for many of us to emulate across the SBC today. Fred has done a wonderful job. He loves the Lord. He loves the Bible. He's built a great church there. As far as I know, it's the largest church in Louisiana now. Mm -hmm. And when he started, as you may remember, it was just a few people there, less than 100 people. And uh, I think he is an outstanding example of an African-American leader who's come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I agree 100%. The the pastor of First Baptist Church is Dr. David Crosby, and he nominated Fred Luter uh, to be president of the convention. So we can thank God. We see some glimmers of light. Uh, We're almost out of time, but I I wonder, Dr. Carter, if I could ask you now just to reflect uh, your whole life living in, in Alabama from the time you were a young boy, God has blessed you and called you. You've lived through so much. You've seen so much. Uh, and you work uh, every day with our students here at Beeson Divinity School, many of whom have not lived what you or even I have lived through uh, and seen this personally. Uh, say a word to the younger listeners to this Beeson podcast, those who may not have known all of the trauma of earlier years but still face the challenge of working on racial reconciliation today. What can they do, what can we do to be faithful to God in this matter of of urgency in our time? The first thing I would encourage them to do, of course, is to study the Scriptures with an open mind and an open Bible and through the inside of the Holy Spirit Unquestionably, I think they will come to a theological understanding of uh, that God is no respecter of persons and God shows no favoritism. Acts 10, James 2, uh, Galatians 3, all these wonderful Bible passages uh, studied that. But then another challenge I would give to students, Dr. George, is then be honest before you go to a church. And what I mean by that is, you say, well, preachers are not going to lie. No, but sometimes we skirt around delicate issues. Mm. And I'll get my own personal testimony there. Uh, 1971, when I came to Shades Mountain and later to be your pastor there, 1971, there were still some seething issues like we've been talking about. That church, to my knowledge, had no, well, I know for a fact, had no black members. And I preached one Sunday morning, again that night, but that afternoon we had an open forum uh, for questions and answers, and they get to know me before they call me as pastor. And so they talked about things around the issue. uh, What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about Jesus? How do you lead someone to Christ? What about pastoral ministries and all this? And I listened for maybe an hour and a half, and those it looked like nobody else was going to ask a question. I said, well... You and I both know we have skirted around a very delicate issue. And before you extend a call to me tonight as your pastor, I want to say that under no circumstances, if I'm asked to be your pastor, will I ever knowingly reject someone from membership in our church on the basis of the color of their skin. Mm. Now, I'm not going to make an issue out of that. But I absolutely want you to know that a vote for me would be a vote to do that. And when that day comes, if it ever does, and I hope it does, we're not going to have a committee. We're not going to have a vote. Automatically, if God accepts them, surely we can accept them. 
I remember it was deathly silent. No one said anything opposed to that, but also no one said anything. And then, after maybe a minute, saintly, godly, friend of yours and mine, Gaines S. Dobbins, stood a retired professor, Southern Seminary, a very well-known religious educator, stood and said, Reverend Carter, our church would not want a pastor who didn't believe just what you said. And it was kind of like when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody was <laughs> silent. And that settled it. And so now you say, well, then they lived happily ever after. Not really. Two years after that, the first black member walked the aisle of our church. His name was Rufus Adetona. He was actually from Nigeria. Of all things, had been led to Christ by one of our own Southern Baptist missionaries, Carl Whirley, mm. and was called to preach, was here at Samford University, and came. You could not have had a more easy person to accept into the fellowship of the church, the product of our world missionaries, and a product of Samford University, and he comes to join our church. So uh, I had known Rufus. I had taken him to lunch. I welcomed him that night, and the church voted just like we always did. All of you in favor say amen. And I didn't ask for any negative votes. I never did. I figured if God could accept them, we could. Immediately after that, I began to miss one of our dearest friends and families, a couple who live within a mile of that church. I knew them both very well. I couldn't tell you all the closeness they had to my wife and me. And a few weeks later, my wife saw the wife of this couple in the shopping center and said, uh, we've been missing you. And she said, oh, said, uh, you know that Sam could never go to a church where the blacks were. Mm -hmm. To which Janice said, but Charles said when he came here, under no circumstances would he reject someone on the basis of their color. Her husband had actually said to her, she said, but Sam thought he really didn't mean that. Oh. I wrote a letter to them. I still have a copy of it telling how much I love them and what I'd heard about their feelings and that I was so sorry and that they were welcome back to church. But that I hoped if they could not come to our church, they would find a church somewhere that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for all people mm. and would respond in membership. They joined a church 250 miles away. Mm. Now, I say that to say my counsel to young preachers is study the Bible, preach the Bible, but before you ever get into an ecclesiastical setting, be transparent with the people. It's a mighty long journey, but we're on the way. Amen. My guest today has been Dr. Charles T. Carter. He's the James H. Chapman Fellow of Pastoral Ministry right here at Beeson Divinity School. He's been talking to us about his own experiences growing up in Alabama as a young pastor in this state and as a leader in the denomination with a special focus God has given him on racial reconciliation. Thank you, Dr. Carter, for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Dr. George, for letting me share. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.